turn to Nehemiah chapter 8. We just saying, you know, I trade my treasures uh, to know you more. And sometimes we think of, you know, big decisions that we'll have to make. And there, there will be some big decisions in life. First of all, obviously, is who we're going to follow. Is Christ, is he our Lord? Is he our shepherd? Uh, so that's the first decision that we make to uh, give our life over to Christ. But then throughout the rest of our spiritual life, throughout the rest of our, our life of following him, we'll be faced with those decisions. Do I choose God? Do I put him in first place? Or do I choose myself? And do I choose uh, what I want to do and what maybe I feel is, is more interesting or more pressing? A young man who many of you know, I won't mention his name because we're on live stream, but a man that many of you know was just faced with a, a big question uh, when a, a close relative of his asked him and said, I want you to promise me that you will never change religions. And some of you may guess who it is, but he's not from this country. He didn't grow up in Christianity, but has recently converted. His, fa- his family doesn't know that for sure, but it seems like they are getting an idea. And that was a moment that he had to decide, what am I going to say? And he, he, he told me, he said, well, I look back and I said, I cannot promise you that. Now, for many of us, those decisions will be maybe to not turn on the TV when we haven't spent time in, in God's Word or to scroll through the news on the Internet when we haven't spent time in His Word. Or it may be taking a stand for Christ when He is being made fun of or even others are being made fun of around the, the cafeteria table at school or on the ball field as an, as an athlete. There's many different decisions that we'll make. Some of you is in your place of, of, of employment. You know, do you stand for Christ? Do people know that you are a Christ follower? Or do you kind of segment your life? Well, at work, that's kind of what I do professionally. And then Sunday and maybe some other times during the week, well, then that's when I follow Christ. So I pray that as we sing, I will trade my treasure so that I may know you more, that you'll be reminded these are oftentimes a lot of little decisions all throughout our life that show is God first place for me. The next two slides will show us Something very interesting, the Center for Bible Engagement has done a lot of research. Uh, they surveyed over 400,000 people. This is just a, uh, a kind of a, a, an overview of the people within that 400,000 group. So 8 to 80 years old, 24 countries represented, 75 plus denominations, including you know, major world religions, churches, schools, general population. So a lot of people to find out, okay, how much engagement do you have? How much contact do you have with God's Word? Now, notice the next slide, what happens. They found that those who engage or those who have connection and spend time in God's Word at least four times a week, that these are some statistics that came out of that 400,000 people survey and through uh, many, you know, many years, 228% more likely to share faith with others. more likely to memorize scripture, 59% less likely to view pornography, and 30% less likely to struggle with loneliness. So as we've looked through and and began to examine how did spiritual revival happen in the time of Nehemiah and God using Ezra, well, one that we looked at last week, one very important and foundational element of spiritual revival is a reverence for God's word. A reverence for God's Word. We also reminded that spiritual revival is not just an event. It isn't just a week that we schedule. It isn't just a special conference. It's not just an event. It doesn't depend on a place. 
the type of facility a church has. It doesn't depend on the pastor, you know, whether how famous he is, uh, if he has, you know, a uh, hundred million followers on, on YouTube or whatever. It doesn't depend on the programs even of the church. Spiritual revival begins with you and your reverence for God's word. But we're also going to begin to see today, number two, spiritual revival involves reverence for God's word, but also an awareness and repentance of sin. An awareness and repentance of sin. I want to go through, I don't normally do this, and one reason is a lot of times when we're going through a book or a passage, uh, I'll do that, and I try to do that exegetically, where we can take segments of that passage, and I have an outline together with that. As we go through Nehemiah, Nehemiah um, is more, it more relates things and events that happened. Uh, So I want to give you a thumbnail view of spiritual revival involving an awareness and repentance of sin. So I'm going to give you kind of the thumbnail view, and then we're going to go through some passages, both in Ezra and Nehemiah. And I want to give you then the, the complete album, okay? So if you follow along that way, we'll go through kind of the thumbnail, and then we'll go through passages, and I'll comment uh, as we go through those passages of what true spiritual repentance looks like. So the thumbnail view, seeing our sin as God sees it, is, is very important. That's what true repentance requires, seeing our sin as God sees it. I watched a little video one time on a church, church's website, and the pastor was specifically referring to salvation, but I think this is helpful even for us as believers. Sometimes we think about our sin as maybe God helping us cross over a little mud puddle, you know, we, we kind of we cross over that, and the Lord kind of helps us through, you know, that, that little mud puddle. We might get a little dirty. We may be a little stained. We might be a little wet. But the pastor made the comparison that, no, really, salvation, and even as we think about our sin, we should think about us being just in the middle of a bunch of mud, a mud pit. And salvation is God pulling us out of the mud pit And then any time that we sin and we transgress against God, we don't have to get saved again, thank God for that, but we need to view our sin as God sees it, the seriousness of our sin. But oftentimes we make jokes about our sin because that makes us feel better. It makes us feel, well, it's not quite as bad if I can joke about it and if other people are doing that sin as well, then we can kind of joke about it and and it's not quite so serious. And certainly my sin isn't as serious as... Well, that person's sin. We need to see our sin as God sees it. The seriousness of it, but also the scope of it. Omission, sins of omission, is basically what we don't do that fails to please God. What we don't do that fails to please God. So those things that God has said, you know, this is important. I mean, we've already looked at being spending time in His Word. And as we neglect spending time in His Word, that would be a sin of omission. Then scope of our sins, sins of commission, what we do that fails to please God. What we do that fails to please God. So seeing our sin as God sees it, but also humbling ourselves before God. Humbling ourselves before God. Even in the passage that I read after one of our songs, because of his great mercy. Remember, but God who was rich in mercy. So we should humble ourselves in light of his great mercy. The moment that I begin to think, boy, I, I am, I'm such a great person and I have accomplished all of this and, and 
God pulled me out of a pit. On my own, remember the Old Testament teaches that our heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? So I have no reason really to boast. I don't have any reason to be prideful. In fact, I need to remind myself, God, I'm thankful for your mercy, but not only for that, but also for your grace. Your mercy withholding punishment that I deserve, but then also the grace that you give, the things that you, you give to me that I don't deserve. The fact that I am in Christ, the fact that I can sing your praises, that's your abundant grace, but also we're We're humbled because we recognize that we're in need of his power. We're in need of his power. I have a bad habit when I use water thermoses. I I tighten them pretty, pretty hard. I I don't think, I don't want to leak, you know, it's a leak at all. And so I tighten them a lot. And uh, the, the ladies in our family aren't always happy when they're trying to wash those and then, you know, take the top off. And it happened again last night. Mary was there and she was washing some, some dishes and she got one of my thermoses and she was trying. She says, finally, she says, Dad, can you help me? I'm like, sure. And I helped her. But sometimes when we're in a, in a point where you know, we, we, we know we need help and we're not succeeding, but yet it's, it's so difficult for us to look to God and says, God, please help me. God, and remember, we're just talking to our dad, so just like Mary, she didn't think twice. I was there at the table doing something. She didn't think twice about saying, hey, dad, can you help me with this? And probably in her mind, she was thinking, it's your fault anyway. I can't get this open, so open it for me. But as we look to our loving father, we can say, dad, we can say, holy father, God the father, I need your help. So we're humbled. We need to humble ourselves because we're in need of his power. True repentance also involves accepting sin's consequences. Accepting sin's consequences. Sometimes when we've asked forgiveness from other people even, it's easy for us to once again minimize the the effects of our sin and want everything to go back to normal right away. But even in the life of King David, who made some huge mistakes in his life, But yet, at the same time that he was repenting in Psalm 51 and telling God, please restore the joy of my salvation, he was suffering some immense consequences of those sins. But yet he willingly accepted them because he knew he had sinned against God and against others. And there will be consequences for our sin. Thank thank God we can have hope. Uh, it says in Romans 5.20, a verse that's said a lot here at One Hope Church, for where sin abounded, God's grace did much more abound. So just because we're facing consequences doesn't mean that we haven't been forgiven. Just because we face sin's consequences doesn't mean that God's grace isn't enough. Zacchaeus, you'll be reminded, he, he stole and Jesus spent time in his house and Zacchaeus uh, came to Christ in repentance. And one of the things that Zacchaeus understood by God working in his life was, those whom I've stolen from, I should pay back. Consequences of his sin. It requires personal responsibility. We need to accept those consequences. But also embracing lasting change. Embracing lasting change. Is it easier to say, hey, I'm sorry, will you forgive me for this, or to say that and change our life in the weeks, months, 
in years to come. What's easier? It's easier just to say it. But God just doesn't want us to voice it, to verbalize it. He wants us to, yes, ask for, ask for forgiveness from God and from others, but then to change our ways, to be transformed so that our life shows the evidence of our repentance. Now, I'd like you to turn with me to Ezra chapter 9. So we, we've been mainly in Nehemiah, but I want to get some background in Ezra chapter 9 because we've just come across Ezra here in Nehemiah chapter 8. So I want to go back to Ezra, uh, the book of Ezra in chapter 9, and we'll start with verse 6. This is many years prior to when we find Ezra in Nehemiah chapter 8, but it helps us to understand why are the people, why are the Jews even asking Ezra to bring the law of the Lord, to, to read it? What, what has happened prior to that? Well, we'll see and we'll begin to see this, this complete album of true repentance as we begin to look at this passage in Ezra 9 and verse 6. So it says, saying, Oh my God, I am ashamed and blush." To lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. Now, I want to pause, and this is what I'm going to do throughout the passage. I'm going to pause and try to point out a few things that go back, goes back to those thumbnail views of what true repentance. When's the last time that you prayed something similar about your sins? I'll admit, that's not a common prayer for me. It's not a common prayer for me to go, God, I, I'll be honest, I, I blush in your presence. Because I understand my sin has been great. And I have great guilt. Ezra recognizes the seriousness of their sin. But unfortunately, in today's culture, especially in our country, the United States of America, sin is made so light of. In fact, in, in many ways, sin has been redefined, even among Christian circles, to be completely accepted just because, well, God is God of love, so it doesn't really matter how you live. I don't see that with Ezra. And representing Ezra as he's representing his people, he, Ezra didn't necessarily partake in all of these sins, but as a representative, he is, he is confessing, he's repenting, even for his nation's sins. So we continue on in Ezra chapter 9, in the second part of verse 7. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is today. So as Ezra's saying here, God, you have been so unfaithful. God, you're not fair to us. We've been in captivity. Our things have been plundered. Our life is so tough. That's not what Ezra says. Ezra says, because of our iniquities, you've given us to captivity, to the sword, and to plundering. He's willingly recognizing and accepting the consequences of their sins. Then notice verse 8, But now, for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within this holy place, that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving, spiritual revival, 
in our slavery. For we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended, extended to us what? Mercy in his steadfast love. One of the Psalms says that his steadfast love is better than life. That's difficult to live out. Because there's a lot of other things that when given the choice and in the moment, we oftentimes will tend to choose the things that we can see and feel and taste and experience then look to God's steadfast love and say, no, your steadfast love is better than all of this. But Ezra says, you've shown favor. And even in our slavery, we've, we're seeing that you've preserved a remnant and you're allowing some to come back to the city of Jerusalem. This is the context that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. And then notice the, next, the very next phrase, before the kings of Persia. Ezra is well aware that he and the people of Israel and the Jews are in desperate need of God's sovereign power. They, they're, they're understanding God has orchestrated this. We didn't just sweet talk the kings of Persia to allow us to come back and begin rebuilding the temple and begin rebuilding the walls around the city. No, this was a sovereign and powerful work of God Almighty. They recognized that even in godless empires, God was still in control and could move the hearts of the kings of Persia. So verse 9 again, as we start from the beginning, for we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments. Once again, reminding themselves and recognizing the seriousness of, this, of their sin, which you commanded by your servants the prophets, saying, the land that you're entering to take possession of it is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never, get this, and never seek their peace or prosperity. Never seek their peace or prosperity. That's tough for us today in 2022. As we live in Metro Atlanta, a very affluent area in parts, and, and we see a lot of business, we see a lot of wealth, we see a lot of entertainment. In, in, in honesty, we see a lot of sin. We see a lot of temporary pleasures of sin. And it's very easy for us to see those things and to, to view all that goes around, uh, you know, on around us and to begin to seek, instead of the peace and prosperity of our God, to begin to wish, boy, I, I wish I had that peace. I wish I had that prosperity. Well, boy, it would be so nice to live that type of life. And Ezra says, this was our sin. This was our great iniquity. It was that you told us, listen, you're going into a land that's impure. Don't intermarry because then you're going to, be able to, you're going to start to mix up even God's and you'll begin to seek their peace and their prosperity. May God help us not to do the same. That we would never seek their peace or prosperity. We oftentimes seek the prosperity and peace from the world rather than from the creator. 
of the world. Then it goes on that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. This is important, folks, because when we're faced with temptation, the decision that goes through our mind often is, what seems better to me? Same thing all the way back to Eve when she was first tempted. And then when Eve brought it before Adam and Adam was tempted, the same decisions of who should I believe in this moment and what seems better to me? God's guidelines for the Jews were for their good. He said, listen, you're going into an impure land where they don't honor me and they they don't seek after my peace and my prosperity. So don't get mixed up with them why? So that you can live a good, li- a good life, so that I can bless you. God's guidelines for us are good, even if in the moment they seem sometimes restrictive, sometimes difficult. They're good for us. His purposes are for our good forever. Notice verse 13. After all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you are God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this. Ezra's recognizing that God had showed his mercy in limiting the punishment and then even showed his grace through preserving a remnant. Sometimes when we see God's discipline in our life, sometimes it's easy for us to think, God, that's enough. I think you've put me through enough, God. And oftentimes it's because we don't have a proper understanding of our own sin. We don't have a proper understanding of of the propensity that we have, the tendency that we have as humans to elevate ourselves again, once again, above God. And God is helping us to see, you need me. And I want to show you mercy and I want to show you grace. But sometimes that means I have to break you. I have to discipline you because remember in Hebrews it says God disciplines those whom he, what? Loves. So Ezra is recognizing God's abundant mercy and his grace. Then verse 14. Shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape? Oh, Lord, the God of Israel, you are just. May God help us to say the same. For we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt. For none can stand before you because of this. I think this passage is is a glimpse of what true repentance looks like. Recognizing the seriousness of sin, the scope of our sin, and uh, humbling ourselves before God and being thankful for His great mercy and His grace and understanding that, yes, we desperately need you. Accepting sin's consequences, but then embracing lasting change. And that's what Ezra finished here. says, you know, after all of this, could it be that we're going to do these same sins again? Now notice with me, let's jump ahead to the next chapter, Ezra chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. Ezra 10, verses 1 and 2. It says, while Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. 
And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra, We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But this, I, I love this phrase. And notice, this is way before Romans 5.20 was ever written, but it says, But even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. But even now, there is hope for Israel in spite of this. If I were to ask you, and I were to tell you, listen, be completely humble and transparent and vulnerable, and I want you to share before everybody today some of your most embarrassing sins that you've committed in your life. Now, I would never do that. But you know who knows those? Who knows those sins? God does. I may never find out, and if those are forgiven, I don't need to find out. But I want to remind you that it doesn't matter what has been in your past, how many sins you've committed, how embarrassing those sins are, how much guilt that sometimes you still struggle with, there is hope for you even in spite of all of that. Praise God for that. Now turn with me to Psalm chapter 106. Psalm 106. It's very possible that this psalm was written during the time of the return and perhaps uh, some of the Jews even, that the, the remnant expressing their repentance as they look back on their past. Psalm 106, and we'll start with verse 6. Both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt... Did not consider your wondrous works. I'm going to pause there for a second. Oftentimes, our sin and our choice to transgress against God is in part because of a failure of worshiping Him. Is in part a failure of noticing and reminding ourselves and worshiping the wondrous works and the majesty of God. And that's what they're saying in the psalm. Listen, we fail to see your wondrous works and then continue on. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love. So another element is we choose to sin. Oftentimes then we're, we're deciding, no, I think that I know what's best for me. Even though we're told again and again and again, and even though Jesus showed with his very own life his immense love for us, sometimes in those moments of temptation, we choose, no, I, I don't think this is what's best for me. I'm going to choose my path. And the Psalms says, they didn't remember the wondrous works. They didn't remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but did what? They rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his name's sake. He's the one that's worthy of all the glory, that he might make known his mighty power. They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them. So sins of omission. They were told to do something, but they didn't do it. Then the, the, the verses to follow, we sins, see sins of commission, sins that they did do. It says, they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. Is that happening today? I'm not talking about nations. I'm talking about believers and unbelievers. 
Do we see in a widespread spectrum believers who are mixing with unbelievers and accepting and celebrating even many of the things that unbelievers do then they're doing and look very similar to those that around them that aren't followers of Christ? Absolutely. And may that grieve our hearts. Not that we stand and go, oh, we are so holier than thou, but that it remind us, God, I have a heart that has that same tendency, so Lord, help me to humble myself before you. Help me to stay in your word so that you can show me by the law of liberty, we see in James, all the ways that I'm, that I, that I'm transgressing and going against your good plan for me. But they mix with the nations and learn to do as they did. They serve their idols, verse 36 which became a snare to them. Then notice verse 37, the point to which they, they got, even in their idolatry, they sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. Now before we just look back and go, wow, how awful is that? How, how could anyone get to that point? We're going to go through this in our study, being ready to respond. We're going to go through it in greater detail. So this is in no way an an effort to look extensively at what God talks about abortion. But do you know in a lot of ways, we've made it a lot easier to do something similar? It's more private. doesn't seem as bad. It's more medical. But yet, the issue of abortion is not just for those who are unbelievers. The issue and the choice of, abor- of abortion is in the church. And if, you've, if you're here and you've, you've had an abortion in the past, I want to remind you that God's grace is sufficient. And God can help you to live a, a very productive and victorious life from this point on. But if you're in the congregation and at some point you're faced with that temptation to end the life of a baby for convenience, for your reputation, or for any other reason that, that is for your, your own selfish, selfishness, may God help you to think back. Is that any better than sacrificing your sons and daughters to the demons? Is it any better? They mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with blood. Thus they became unclean by their acts and played the whore in their deeds. We begin to see, I think, a little bit more in this passage why it was so important for the Jews not to intermarry. This wasn't just a a nationalistic thing, but God was saying, listen, I want you to be pure. I want you to follow me. And we see to what extent that it affected even the Jews that they began to worship those false gods. They began to sacrifice their own sons and daughters to the demons. They were then now guilty of shedding innocent blood. 
And so that gives us a glimpse of why Ezra was saying, we blush before you, God. Our iniquity has been great. Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 9. So now we're back out of Ezra. Now we're back into Nehemiah. We've uh, jumped ahead a number of years. And so Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 9, it says, And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and and the scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the peoples, This day is holy. Or, or, or pure, set apart to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. And then notice, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Because they were beginning and were reminded again as the law of the Lord was being read, Boy, how much have we sinned against our God? I'm sure this has happened to you before, but... There's been occasions where if, I, if I'm cleaning in a room or, or, or doing something in a room and maybe it's, it's, a, it's a darkened room but the, the blinds are a little bit open and the, the sun is shining through and where the sunbeams shine through, you can see all the dust particles, right? Now where the sun's not shining through, you, as you look around it would seem like, well, no, this is, this is all clean and there's no, there's no dust, there's not a lot of dirt, but then where the sun shines through, it's like, wow, I'm breathing all that in? Whew. In a similar way, that's how God's word is. As God's word shines onto our life, you know, at first glance, I mean, no, I'm, I'm pretty good. I don't have a lot of sin. I, I don't really have a lot to, to repent of. I'm not a bad person, but then as we spend time in God's word, then we begin to see maybe how our heart has deceived our mind and our motives. And may God allow us to not only you know, allow it, but even to seek the light of the gospel and his word on a daily basis. God, change me. As David prayed in Psalm 139, Lord, if there's any wicked way in me, show me that. Help me to come back to you. Turn with me into James, if you would, James chapter 4. We'll start in verse 5. The first couple of verses of James chapter 4, it talks about, you know, quarrels and fights and, and, you know, what causes this. And James says, is it not your passions that are at war within you? But pick up with me in James 4 and verse 5. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us? Then notice verse 6, but he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands. We've done enough of that in the last couple of years, right, in a, in a physical way. But this is spiritually speaking of, okay, we, you know, we've become so, it's been such a, a, a push to, you know, wash your hands 20 seconds and sing this little song while you wash your hands and, you know, do the, uh, the, the hand sanitizer. And now in the hospitals, the, nurse are, the nurses are either getting docs if they don't push the hand sanitizer enough or getting rewards if they push it, you know, uh, more. But spiritually speaking, it says to cleanse your hands. I, I think this may be a reference to our actions. 
Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts or attitudes, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Oh no, but the New Testament, that's the age of grace and that's the age of Jesus Christ. Yes, but it's not the age that we don't repent of sin. May we not confuse the age of grace with the importance to still come before the Lord and say, Lord, I've sinned against you. Please forgive me. And then help me to accept that forgiveness and live victoriously in the grace and mercy that you show. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord. And who will exalt? Who exalts? He does. The Lord will exalt. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. Now, all the way back to the beginning, as I mentioned, that many, much of our Christian life is these little decisions that we make day in and day out, week in and week out. And sometimes when we're facing difficulties and when we're sad, when maybe we even got to the point that we're depressed, instead of looking to God for peace and prosperity, maybe we go to our favorite TV show and our, our favorite series, like, okay, I'm just going to zone out here for a minute, and this, this at least will bring me some happiness. Maybe we even go beyond that and we go even to, to drugs and to, to alcohol and to sex. And that seems to give us a, a temporary relief and satisfaction and joy. But James says, listen, resist the devil, submit to God, draw near to him, humble yourself before him. And you know what he'll do? He will lift you up. He will bring you out of the mud pit. He'll give you the purpose and remind you of the purpose in life. True repentance brings about all of this. A.W. Pink said it this way, Oh, my reader, do you know what it is to be melted before God? For you to be a heartbroken with anguish over sinning against and grieving such a Savior? Oh, it is not the absence of sin, but the grieving over it which distinguishes the child of God from empty professors. May we be repentant of our sin. So reverence for God's word, a true repentance of sin, an awareness of that through God's word, and then a repentance of that. And then thirdly, an element of spiritual revival is a commitment to follow God. A commitment to follow God. Ezra 10, verses 3 through 6. So now we're back in Ezra. In Ezra 9, he's just confessed, and we've seen a glimpse of, of true spiritual repentance Ezra 10, verses 1 and 2, the people have come to him and they said, yes, we've broken faith with God, but then they say, but yet there's still hope for Israel. And then notice what happens in the next couple of verses in Ezra 10, 3 through 6. Therefore, all, you know, Pat, going back on all that we've read in Ezra 9 and the first couple of verses of Ezra 10, therefore let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord. I read that in just a few seconds, but I want you to think about how difficult that decision was. That was not an easy decision. Put away our wives and our, our children? Ezra, what? How can it be? Now remember the context of, the, of the, the, just the, the rampant idolatry and the, really the demonic activity that was happening and was causing even the Jews to do similar things because of the intermarriage. So remember that context. But this was a tough decision. 
Now, in the New Testament, we see in 1 Corinthians 7 that Jesus makes it clear if a believer is married to an unbeliever, and as long as the unbeliever is willing and remains in the marriage, the believer should be committed and should show the love of Christ faithfully in a prayer and an effort to see that spouse come to know Christ. So don't misinterpret this Old Testament passage and say, oh, finally, man, I'm out of here. I am going home, and boy, it, this is it. No, that's not, the, that's not the, new, the new covenant way. But what I want to draw out of this is there's tough choices that you're going to have to make. Sometimes there will be friendships that you have to end because they are leading you down the wrong path, and instead of you showing Christ to them, they're drawing you away from your master and from your Lord, Jesus Christ. There may be some tough choices of the type of job and the employment that you pursue or even keep as you follow God. There may be a point where you have to say, listen, I've got to walk away because this is not good for my spiritual journey for Christ. There may be hobbies that you love and you get a lot of satisfaction out of that, but there may be points where you have to draw back and say, I've got to put some limits because this is drawing me away from committing to follow God. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord. And of those who tremble the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law, arise for it is your task and we are with you. Be strong and do it. Then Ezra arose and made the leading priests and the Levites and all Israel take an oath that they would do as had been said. So they took the oath. Then Ezra, verse 6, withdrew from before the house of God and went to the chamber of Jehoanan, the son of Eliashib, where he spent the night, neither eating bread nor drinking water, for he was mourning over the faithlessness of the exiles. Following God requires making tough choices, but following God also demands perseverance. Following God demands perseverance. If you jump back with me to Nehemiah now, Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 1. Nehemiah 8 and verse 1. So many years have passed, but yet we see the Jews, at least a part of them, that come to Nehemiah and it says, And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. It wasn't enough just to look back on that, you know, those special days. And it actually took uh, a couple months, if I'm not mistaken, for them to follow through what they said they were going to do in Ezra chapter 10. But it wasn't enough just for the Jews to look back and go, oh, yeah, you remember that time? You know, when Ezra and then we did. And then the... sometimes that happens as we get older in Christ. Our church is a very new church, obviously, but if God tarries and if the Lord blesses, our church hopefully will be around for a long time for His glory. And may, may we beware of the tendency to look back and go, oh, yeah, yeah, you remember that time at One Hope when there was this... It requires perseverance. It's not just an event in the past. This is a journey. It's a continual thing that God wants us to experience, spiritual revival, to continue to seek his word, as they did this in this verse. Hey, Ezra, we're gathered. Bring the law of the Lord. Read it before us. Nehemiah 8 and verse 13 says, On the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the peoples with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study 
the words of the law. Reminds us of the importance, even from the very beginning, four more times in God's word a week, statistically even, shows a lot of difference. James 1.22, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and you may remember this from our study through James, and then it says, and perseveres, and continues on, and does it again, and then does it again, and next week the same thing, and next month, and then next year, and then when they're 50, and then when they're 75, and then if they're still alive when they're 82, that they persevere in God's word, committed to following God. And perseveres being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts. He will be blessed in his doing. As I was studying, I I came across a resource that had an interesting illustration. It goes all the way back to 1989. Some of you sports fans, if you're a Michigan fan, you might remember this. I was not aware of this, but I enjoyed basketball, but never really followed a lot of teams. But in 1989, Michigan's Rumiel Robinson stepped to the foul line for two shots. It was late in the fourth quarter. And upon these two shots, he could have brought his team ahead, Wisconsin, who they were playing. Wisconsin was leading at the time, about to upset Michigan Wolverines. And he missed both shots. So Rumiel felt bad about that, obviously. Is it the Michigan Wolverines? Okay, I was thinking, man, I hope I had the right team there. So he missed both shots. This was early in the season. But instead of just saying, yeah, my, that was awful, you know, he decided after every practice, I'm going to shoot 100 foul shots, you know, free throw shots. 100 every practice at the end, I'm going to shoot 100. Was interesting at the end of the season, three seconds left in overtime, the national championship game. Guess who shows up at the free throw line? Ramiel Robinson. And because of perseverance all through the season, it wasn't just because of that one moment where he felt bad and embarrassed that he had, he had lost the game for his, for his team, but all throughout the season, the perseverance paid off when three seconds left in overtime. Because of his free throw shots, won, and then the second right after, won the national championship because he persevered. Now, we as Christians, I don't know why this stuck with me, at our, but I remember being the back in the back of Morningside Baptist Church. Years ago, I was still in seminary, and the pastor at the time looked at me, and he says, he says David, the Christian life is not just a flash in the pan. The Christian life is, is longer, it's a journey. It's not just a flash in the pan. And I don't know why that has stuck with me till, till today, but many times I'll think about that as I'm tempted maybe to give up or I'm tempted to maybe even exalt myself even more because of something exciting that happened. I'm reminded to think the Christian life is not just a flash in the pan. It's a journey. It's perseverance. It's a path. And lastly, we see that following God leads to no regrets. Following God leads to no regrets. 
2 Corinthians 7.10 says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. And we see a very vivid illustration of this between two apostles, Judas and Peter. Judas, who rejected Jesus Christ, Judas, who betrayed Jesus Christ, but yet after the betrayal, you'll be reminded, he came to a point where he was worldly sorrowful for what he had done. And he killed himself. Not true repentance. Peter, on the other hand, who Jesus had even prophesied, listen, before the the crow crows three times, you're going to deny me thrice. Peter's like, no, no, I'll, I'll give my life for you. But then Peter denies once, twice, third time, even vehemently, I don't know the man. And then as Jesus pulls him aside, fixes him a breakfast, begins to walk with him, Peter, do you love me? Yes, feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Yes, then feed my sheep. And Peter goes on to show a true repentance that led to action and a commitment to follow God, even to the point of his own death for his faith in Christ. I hope that these first three principles will be a reminder, an Old Testament setting, but something that Paul emphasizes in both Ephesians and Colossians. Of the threefold process of true discipleship and true spiritual growth, one is to put off the old man, to renew the mind, and to put on the new man. How many of you have ever had a, um, a combination lock? Maybe you put on a locker way back when in high school. That's kind of when I used mine the most. Raise your hand if you've, if you've ever used a combination lock. Okay. Can you just do half of the sequences of numbers and open it? I'm tired. I'm just going to do half of them. It's not going to open. You can do half of them all day long. You can do it real, you can do it just carefully, and you can even get real fast. And and you just do half of them. Do you like that? But if you don't do all the sequences, it's not going to open up. And spiritually speaking, we need to understand that if we don't have a reverence for God's word, That's the renewal of the Spirit. If we don't have an awareness and repentance of our sins, that's putting off the old man. And then if we don't have a commitment to follow God, that's putting on the new man, then we will never unlock the keys to spiritual growth. We may again and again and again, oh, I just, I want to stop the sinning, and I I, I don't want to do that anymore. But are you renewing your mind? Are you in contact with God's word? Are you engaging with God Almighty through his word? And then are you putting on the new man in righteousness for his glory?